Hey listeners, it's Lauren here with another message from our friends at DraftKings. McGregor vs. Poirier 3 is all set for UFC 264. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with a DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all customers at a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Look, I don't know anything about UFC. I don't even know if his name is pronounced Poirier or Poirier, but I do know that Fantasy UFC on DraftKings is easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. It's the McGregor vs. Poirier rubber match. Get in on the action now. Download the DraftKings app and use promo code TBPN for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code TBPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. This is Pratik Patel from ESPN Wisconsin, and I'm on the NBA beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the Twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. After two games of the NBA Finals, the Milwaukee Bucks find themselves in an 0-2 hole to the Phoenix Suns. In NBA playoff history, there have been 326 occasions where a team has been down 0-2 in a seven-game series, and in just 24 of those has that team come back to win the series. On the bright side, that deficit has already been overcome three out of eight times in this year's playoffs, one of which was the Milwaukee Bucks winning over the Brooklyn Nets in the Eastern Conference semifinals. The Bucks hope to beat the odds again here, and as is often said, a series doesn't truly start until the home team loses a game. We've brought back former guest Frank Madden, host of the Locked On Bucks podcast, to discuss with us where Milwaukee struggled in games one and two of this series and where he sees hope in how they might be able to turn it around. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Thanks. Yeah, we were just reminiscing about uh, the first time I was on when Giannis was in his third year and not even an all-star at that point. So it's funny how things have changed. And I, I guess at back then it was Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Jabari Parker. And one of those guys not really relevant for the Bucks anymore, but funny how, you know, kind of the more things change, the more they stay the same and how all that's sort of, at least for the most part, bearing fruit for the Bucks right now in the finals. And we're speaking in between games two and three, the Milwaukee Bucks find themselves in an 0-2 hole in this series as it shifts back to Milwaukee. Just as context, they were also down 0-2 in the net series, and last series they lost game one at home to the Hawks. So this team is definitely resilient and doesn't panic, but right now things aren't necessarily looking good for the Bucks. We'll get into the specifics 
later in the show, but just in broad strokes, what needs to change in order for the Bucks to make this a more competitive series and have a chance to come back at home and also over the course of the rest of the series? Yeah, I mean, it's always a little hard to judge a series before you've seen kind of the teams play in, in both gyms. But the flip side is, you know, I, I remember looking up the stat during the Nets series, you know, at the time, it was 93% of teams that go up 2-0 in the conference semis or later go on to win a series. And so, fortunately, that that number did not hold uh, <laughs> back back two rounds ago against the Nets when the Bucks were able to overcome that. But obviously, with, with how well Phoenix has played in the first two games and the Bucks struggling to kind of get everything clicking on on all cylinders clearly they they do need some things to change i think obviously playing at home should make a difference and and should hopefully give them a boost as we've seen in in the last few series but overall i think it's just you know they're going to need more consistent production from drew holiday and chris middleton offensively i think that's probably the most the most obvious thing that they really need which they obviously did not get in in games one and two and you know, I think they're going to have to do different things against that Phoenix Suns pick and roll in particular. You know, I don't think you can defend Chris Paul and Devin Booker just one way. I think they're going to have to continue to throw kind of different looks, whether it's Brooke Lopez dropping or going small and, and switching. I think they're going to have to continue to kind of throw different looks at them, try different things. And, you know, to some extent, you're just going to have to hope that those guys and especially the role players as well just start to miss some shots and you know, I think when you think about the story of the first two games, you know, a lot of it just comes down to the Suns were just terrific shot makers and the Bucks in particular, Holiday in both games and Middleton in the second game, they just they just weren't. And for all you know, as good as Giannis was in game two, they ultimately just didn't have enough firepower to keep up. So hopefully that changes a bit with the change of scenery, but obviously um, you know, there's really no margin for error when you're when you're down too well. And I do want to talk about first that one bright spot that you brought up, which is the performance of Giannis, especially in game two, where he had 42 points and 12 rebounds, a really historic performance. And even in game one, he had a 20 points, 17 rebounds, his first game back from the injury that he suffered in the last series. First of all, I want to get what was going through your head when you saw him go down last series, what you were thinking about in the moment, and also in that context, how to just contextualize the huge performances that he's had, especially in game two. I mean, I've been a Bucks fan for basically 30 years <laughs> and watching him go down with what appeared to be, you know, not just necessarily a playoff ending injury, but potentially an injury that could knock him out of essentially all of next year as well. That, that might've been really my, my low point as a fan <laughs> of this team. Cause I mean, we've been used to them being mediocre for the vast majority of the time I've been a fan, but to be this close where at the time, you know, you're tied in the Eastern Conference Finals, you have the more talented team, you really should be advancing to the to the finals. And then to see, you know, your superstar two-time MVP, a guy who's been remarkably durable, just suffer this horrible looking injury. You know, I kind of half jokingly referred to it as like from a fan perspective, it was like a near-death experience, basically those 24 hours thinking that, geez, I have to be prepared that he's blown out everything in his knee and, you know, next year is gone too. To them the next day hearing, you know, no structural damage and we'll see what happens here over the next, you know, couple of weeks. So just to have him play in game one, you know, to, to win those two games the way they did, to close out the Hawks series was incredible. To know that Giannis still had a chance to come back at some point in the playoffs was you know, just felt like a new lease on life, I think, for Bucks fans, just that you had a chance at that. And then 
for him to come back and, and actually play at a high level, you know, has just been incredible to see him playing the way he has been. And um, as you said, to have a dominant performance in game two, a historically great performance in game two, despite the fact that he was clearly having some issues with the knee. He had a calf problem with cramps at one point. I mean, obviously, if you're a Bucks fan, it's a shame they lost, but I'd say doubly a shame just because of how good he was and how much he himself obviously deserved to come away from that game with with more to show for it. So hopefully it at a minimum answers, you know, some of the questions that, that people have had about him and you know his ability to be kind of that true alpha superstar at the highest level. We'll see. There's obviously a lot of the series left, but but certainly I think he showed everybody the kind of player he is and how tough he is to to kind of be playing through that pain and the resiliency, as you, as you mentioned, this team has shown great resiliency and, you know, Giannis is is nothing if not resilient himself. I guess given that dominant performance and also with the context, that, as you said, that he at times definitely doesn't look like he's 100% back. Is it reasonable or even possible to ask for even more from him? He gave 40 minutes in game two during that historic performance. Some people were wondering if it would be possible to play him even more up to like 45 or yeah i think that that's kind of the operative question i mean obviously there's been a lot of talk of the past year plus about you know his, his minute loads in the playoffs and how bud hasn't always played him as much as probably he needed to play him. i mean i think that's changed largely in these playoffs where you know they've really rode him much more than than they have in previous years but obviously coming back from the injury as well not just his knee, but his conditioning is a bit challenged and he's obviously asked to do a ton on both ends. So I would expect, you know, as the series goes on, especially games three and four, I mean, if these are close games, you know, I think he played 22 minutes in the second half on Thursday. So, you know, he's already getting stretched certainly significantly in the second half there. So I, I don't know that they have much choice, but to continue to do that and just see how you know far they can take him. I, I don't know that he can play much more than like 45, 45 minutes. And, you know, keep in mind too, that the upside of that second half was he was getting fouled so much and getting landing on the ground so much. He kind of, I think, used that pretty strategically to basically lay there for a while, gain, get regain his breath a little bit, use use those times between free throws to try to recharge his batteries a little bit. But, but certainly that's going to be a challenge. And I, I know that's been a talking point here of 40 minutes just may not be enough from from him, just given how good the Suns are and given just how you know little the Suns give you in terms of breathing room with you know their ability to kind of just relentlessly attack you for 48 minutes. So I would expect, barring some setback, which certainly is possible, but coming off now two days rest, they're going to have two days rest the next two games. I think that certainly helps Giannis. I think that also helps just the rest of the Bucks. I mean, I think these guys, I don't know how much, how much they have in their legs at this point with only a couple of days off between this series and the last series as well. The Suns obviously had a lot more rest coming into this series. So Hopefully that does mean they can extend him even further than they have. And, you know, as you said, it's uh, hard to ask for more after the last game, but I don't think he's going to score 40, po- 40 points every game, but they certainly could, could use some, some more minutes from him. Just, just given the fact that they're, they're really only going, you know, functionally sort of six deep. And sometimes Bobby Portis makes it seven. Sometimes Bryn Forbes makes it eight. We've seen a little bit of Jeff T, but you know, really the starters and Pat Connaughton have been the only kind of really reliable guys that they've had throughout the playoffs so certainly depth is is not a selling point of this team right now although obviously the Suns with the losses of Saric and uh, Torrey Craig you know have also been dealing with some of that as well but certainly everything for the Bucks starts with Giannis. Hey Frank this is Aaron it's great to talk to you again especially with Milwaukee in the finals. 
So I want to go to more about the supporting cast, particularly Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday being, I would say, the other two stars on the team. And we saw a couple epic blocks from Drew Holiday. Oof, I, I think they were both on DeAndre Ayton, at least one of them was. And just overall, his phenomenal defensive effort against Chris Paul. Six turnovers, you don't see that too often out of Chris Paul. But for whatever reason, a lot of those close shots that Drew Holiday usually makes were not falling. He was aggressive, though. And then Chris Middleton, as you well know, I don't need to tell you, is pretty streaky offensively. He'll have huge nights, and then he'll have dreadful nights, for lack of a better word. He was pretty dreadful offensively in game two, just hitting five of 16 from the floor. 11 points total is not going to cut it for Milwaukee. What do we need to see from either or both of those guys in order for Milwaukee to have a chance at coming back to win this series? Yeah, I mean, I think with Holiday, the interesting thing was he was definitely really aggressive in game two. In game one, I think he was a lot more passive about looking for a shot. And a lot of people have observed like, well, and this has happened to, to extents throughout the playoffs. How does he kind of find his way, find his shot, find his role, especially when Giannis and Chris are both playing, just given the number of shots available. And, you know, I guess the, the silver line there is that he was really aggressive. He was getting a lot of shots around the basket. A lot of them obviously are contested, but he's got good touch. He's certainly a much better finisher than we saw from him the other night. And the three-point shooting has been a problem throughout the playoffs. So that's really been a team problem overall. I mean, they've been the worst shooting three-point team uh, in the playoffs, which is kind of makes it remarkable they're even here. And again, it's especially strange just because, I mean, they were a really good three-point shooting team during the, the regular season. So I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, I mean, is it that they have kind of dead legs? You know, they just, they're just tired. I, I don't know, but they were shooting really poorly in the first and second rounds too. So it's not like they were suffering from that same issue then. So I think as a team, they need to, I mean, they're going to have to shoot, especially from deep at a, at a higher clip than they have. And, you know, Middleton and, and Holly are obviously a huge part of that, given the volume of threes that they take and the fact that the ball's in their hands so much. So Middleton has definitely been much more consistent and played at a higher level. His highs also have been, you know, certainly higher than, than Holiday's. So, you know, for Middleton in particular, he's was really good in games five and six in game one um, against the Suns as well. So I, I don't know. I mean, usually he then bounces back and plays really well. But at this point, Mikel Bridges and the Suns defensively also, I think, can give him problems. So it's maybe not the, the most insightful answer, but I think it's just, he's just got to make shots. And the good news is, I mean, both Chris and Drew, like last night, I think they combined for 15 assists and three turnovers. They do other things, obviously. You mentioned the defense by Drew. I mean, the block, especially that block on Aiden when Aiden was going right at him. I mean, it's just like that play and just the, the full court defense on Chris Paul, the way he was getting up in Chris. Yeah. I mean, it's super impressive. So I'm sure it's also tiring. It's also tiring. But, you know, he's a guy yeah. that exerts his, exerts energy defensively during the season too. And you know, he, he's always sort of managed to find a balance. So so I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's the biggest reason probably for pessimism if you're a Bucks fan, aside from the fact you're down 2-0, is just the fact that your second and third best players, however you're going to order them, just don't feel like guys you can count on to any given night. You just don't know what you're going to get from them. And B, now you've got to win four out of five. So, you know, they can't afford to have three off games out of five. They've got to pretty much be good to great, more or less every game from here on out. Certainly they can't both be, you know, bad as we saw in game two, shooting the ball. It's, it's just really tough. And again, I mean, I think we've seen those guys when they're, when they have their game, they're really valuable two-way guys. They can both create for others as well as themselves. But, you know, that's the difference between 
a top five to 10 player and a top 30 to 35 player, right? I think those two guys are both in that latter category and they're just not going to be able to give you 25 to 30 points every night in the playoffs. They're going to have games that are just not as good offensively. And obviously it's a bad time to be seeing that up close and having it really be felt because you're in the finals. But, you know, again, I think some of this is also just sort of the limitations of kind of what they can do night in and night out. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. But I think just from a glass half full perspective, they only lost by 10. And that was getting nothing really combined from Holiday and Middleton offensively. So that could be a source of optimism. But then on the other side of the coin, the margin for error is so slim. When you're in the NBA finals, you're facing a team as talented and deep as these Phoenix Suns. And we saw it in game two. You talked about it in your last episode of Locked on Bucks. The frustration factor, if you're a Bucks fan watching that game, every time they're starting to claw back, your co-host talked about it too, where he was on the edge of the seat and then he just slink back it on his couch when Phoenix would inevitably respond. But uh, one reason, particularly in game two, why they were behind so much and I, I think what ultimately sunk them was their three-point defense. Phoenix was getting really whatever it wanted from beyond the arc. And I think that would be a significant problem that they really have to solve going forward if it's even possible. In your mind, how does Milwaukee go about doing that, containing the Suns from beyond the arc? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting because a lot of the recurring themes from the regular season, I mean, if you if you ask the Bucks fan to say, what's the problem with the Bucks defense during the regular season, it'd be, well, they overhelp and they give up too many threes. And that really has not been something that's been kind of at the forefront of their issues in the playoffs. You know, I think especially in that net series, you know, everything was so Kevin Durant centric um, and they had to switch so much that they really didn't fall as, as much of a victim to that. And they, you know, Joe Harris didn't shoot the lights out <laughs> exactly either. So, you know, the nets didn't really punish them as much in that regard, but certainly I thought that was one of the silver linings of game one, or maybe missed opportunities in game one was that the bucks, you know, made more threes in game one than, than Phoenix did. So for all those like, tough shots and, you know, mid-range shots that CP3 and, and Devin Booker made. You know, the flip side is, well, basically you're playing two-man game there. You're not helping off of those wings. You're really not giving the role players a lot of easy looks to hurt you with. So that was sort of the trade-off. But, you know, I think we saw in game two, they tried to really shrink the floor against CP3 and, and Booker and pick and roll and show them more bodies. And I think there were definitely upsides to that. I mean, the, the Suns pain points you know, were, I think they had 28 paint points in the whole game. They didn't get, you know, pretty much any free throws until basically like the last few minutes of the game when they were sort of just chasing and fouling. Um, but the the trade-off was, you know, giving up more looks to to those wing three-point shooters. And so, um, I mean, part of the issue is just, Suns are really good. <laughs> you kind of have to pick your poison. You know, are you going to give uh, Booker and, and Paul, you know, the looks that they want from mid-range? Um, or are you going to try to put more pressure on them, try to turn them over more, but at the risk of letting those, those wings and those role players get open looks for themselves. So, um, it was interesting in the first half, I think I was kind of looking at the game chart, I think of their corner threes, I think they went like seven of 11 in the first half and like two out of four or something like that in the second half, um, when the bucks were switching more and they were small more. So, you know, they kind of improved as the game went on in terms of, um, the way that they were able to contain some of that catch and shoot 
uh, three stuff that they were giving up. But, you know, again, I, I don't think there's an easy answer for it. The Bucks have pretty much tried everything at this point already in the series. And they've had some success at some points. Um, and, you know, also, I think it's also a little bit hard too, because I think when guys are hitting mid-range jumpers, I don't think you can let that really kind of, you, you can't, I, I don't think you'd like just completely go away from something just because, you know, a team is making kind of low expected value shots against you. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they need to just like switch Brooke Lopez and let, you know, Booker and Paul go one-on-one with Brooke Lopez for the next, you know, however many games the series goes. Cause I think there's value in pressuring CP three, putting Drew Holiday on him and making him work and everything. But, um, you know, I think there's a role for sort of all those types of approaches throughout the series because you just can't play one way against these guys and expect to have it always work, right? They're too good. You're going to have to surprise them. You're going to have to try different things. And they pretty much have tried everything through two games. So I'm curious to see what they do in game three. Um, I would expect they'll probably start with the drop. I thought Lopez, his for his part, played really well in the drop in game two. Um, but again, you know, there's not a uh, you know, we talk about margin of error. You just overhelp a little bit on this team, and uh, they can really punish you with that three-point shooting. Yeah, and it's difficult to analyze a series through just two games because the three-point dominance that I cited was really only the case in game two, but it was just then the free throws that were the issue in game one where Giannis was the only Milwaukee player to attempt more than two free throws that game. And, and not only did Phoenix attempt so many more free throws, but they went 25 of 26 from the line. So that's killer. But with a long series, there are going to be, and Milwaukee hopes it's a long series, there are going to be a lot of adjustments. But given how talented and versatile Phoenix is just across the board offensively with the mid-range game, the lobs, the threes, there's no real easy answer, right? I feel like that's an obvious question, but it's not going to be like, Budenholzer just stumbles on some genius thing that just flips the series 180. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, you know, you just have to trust that those guys can't shoot um, that high of a level, you know, especially some of the just, you know, stare down (laughs) in your face type jump shooting that they were able to pull off. I mean, it was interesting looking at some of the data on shot quality and it, you know, said the Bucks had better shot quality in, in each of the first two games. And you know, I think I guess you could say some of that shot quality stuff goes out the window when you've just got great shot makers playing at the high, the kind of you know peak of their game. And on the flip side, you've got you know Middleton was good in game one, bad in game two, and Holiday you know really struggled in both games. So you know, kind of the, the make or miss league stuff I think comes to it. There's a couple different ways the Bucks can play, and um, you know I think we saw in the Atlanta series, which to me was kind of like a, a warm up. You know, playing against Trey Young and Clint Capella was kind of a warm up for playing against CP3 and uh, and Aiden and, and Booker as well. Um, and you know, they won games in different ways. And some games it was because they, you know, went small during crucial periods and were able to still rebound well enough to, um, you know, to to, to get stops. Uh, other games it was Brook Lopez and shrinking the floor and forcing turnovers. That was you know really a game two type story. Uh, and I think you know we've seen the Suns be able to do enough against kind of whatever the Bucks have done so far. Um, but again, it doesn't mean that, that you know, those different approaches just are, are doomed to be exploited throughout the series, you know, forever. Um, you know, Chris Paul doesn't, doesn't shoot 70% on, you know, mid-range jumpers uh, every game. <laughs> so, but again, you know, the, the thing I always say is, you know, the problem with playoff series is that they're small sample sizes. You know, anything can happen in a, you know, four or five, six, seven game series. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the problem is... Um, you know, 
I always think back. I don't, I don't know if you guys, um, you know, have heard the the phrase, um, you know, when it when it comes to markets and and, and stock markets. I think it was basically with regard to investing, right? The market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. You know, talking about like people who have like short positions or things like that. It's like, no, no, the market just needs to get rational. It'll come around, right? It's like, well, that that all sounds fine and good, but um, you know, you can kind of fall into the same trap with with, with you know expecting that some guys are just going to stop shooting really well from whatever it is, three point range or mid range or whatever. And if they're open sods too. Yeah, and I mean, I think in this in game two, you know, they they gave up more open shots. You know, there were a lot more open threes, and they I think there were fourteen out of twenty two on open threes, which is you know the most open threes that they've had in a while. Um, but it's also like you're shooting sixty four percent on open threes as a team. Like that's absurd as well, right? Like it happens in single games, but you don't expect yeah, them to do that. Probably not sustainable, right? I mean, like Joe Harris was like a fifty percent open three point shooter, and I think he was or maybe a little more than that and led the league. So. So, I mean, it's just kind of one of those things, right? Like, the Suns are really good. They were playing at home. The crowd was awesome. You know, they were rested. They had a good plan. They adapted to what the Bucks did. Um, but look, I mean, they lost two games to a Clippers team that was super undermanned and kind of, you know, playing without Kawhi. And, you know, I mean, the Suns almost, you know, if not for an Anthony Davis injury, the Suns may not have gotten out of the first round. You know, who knows, right? Like, this isn't, you know, the the seventy two win bulls that that we're talking about. Um, as good as they are, so you just have to, I think, try some things that you know can work in spurts and play your game, and you just have to play better. You know, <laughs> some, you know, it's like the shooting of Middleton and Holiday. You just need those guys to regress to, you know, something closer to their to their mean, and hope that Giannis continues to to be healthy and play the way he can, right? And, so, so we'll see. I'm, I'm just really curious just to see kind of, you know, even it's just like from that like psychological energy perspective, like what does game three look like and, you know, how much does that home crowd that's going to be, you know, itching for, you know, the first Bucks playoff or Bucks finals game in 47 years, right? I mean, I think the crowd's going to be great in that game. And, you know, you just hope that the team can kind of draw energy from that the way they have the last few games that were played in Milwaukee. One topic that you touched on a little bit earlier, I guess I would say, to put it nicely, Bucks fans have been expressing over the course of this playoffs and the course of Bud's tenure, like to put it nicely again, uh, consternation about some of his choices for lineups or uh, how he decides to allocate minutes, especially when we get deeper into the playoffs. And taking this with a huge grain of salt because lineup data in these short series can get very you know, out of whack very quickly with such a small sample size. But Milwaukee's most played five-man lineup is their starting lineup. And that lineup has actually outscored Phoenix by nine points while all five guys are on the floor. But they've only played together for 22 total minutes across the two games. And in contrast, Phoenix's starting lineup has played together for 52 minutes so far this series. Monty Williams sticking with his starters a little bit longer or maybe giving them a little bit more rope. What do you think of like the calculus behind that decision by Bud? Um, a lot of it driven by the fact that Brooke Lopez only played 22 minutes in the first game. And as you said, maybe for the Bucks, when certain things weren't working, it was sort of like you did want to try out a lot of different things to try to find something that would turn the tide. I mean, I think they need to lean into Lopez and what he can bring um, to them. I mean, offensively, 
he's not going to be necessarily like a consistent guy in terms of like the volume of what he's contributing, especially with Giannis and the way that, you know, Giannis needs room to operate. Like, you know, people are like, oh, why isn't Brook Lopez on the block? Or, you know, when he had the 33 point game and against Atlanta, we're like, oh, this is the Brook Lopez we should always be getting. It's like, well, he was taking Giannis's rim runs and <laughs> using a lot of the real estate that, you know, Giannis typically uses. And, you know, we saw the next game. I mean, you know, you just can't sit around the rim and just get lobs all game. Most games, that's, that's hard to do it. Defenses adjust. So, um, I think they do need to lean in though more on Lopez, use their size, um, you know, try to beat them up on the offensive glass. I mean, interestingly, the offensive glass has been sort of their savior throughout the playoffs and kind of in many ways been the antidote to that poor three point shooting that I mentioned. Um, and so whether it's, you know, just religiously zone dropping him or at times switching him, um, I think he's kind of underrated in terms of his ability to, to kind of hang in, in switches. And again, if Chris Paul wants to take, you know, a 19 foot, contested jumper over a seven footer if he's just going to make that the rest of the series then you know i'd rather have that than those open kickouts for threes from mikhail bridges right i mean just from an expected value standpoint so but i think by the same token like in terms of like you know well have been playing you know the starters enough i mean they have six guys that (laughs) that really are reliable and that play a lot of minutes so you know, it's not like they're playing a 10 man rotation and playing a bunch of, you know, playing like an all bench lineup or, you know, playing, you know, one starter with a bunch of bench guys. Like it's pretty much, you know, just a bunch of combinations with more or less six guys. And then uh, in this series so far, we've also seen him Forbes typically plays at least a little bit to see if, if he's got his shot going and, you know, Portis has been kind of a, an in and out guy. Um, I, I don't know really what to expect of him. The rest of this series, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to, whether they think that, you know, going big is is an antidote to, you know, the shooting struggles or, or kind of how they want to really attack them and whether they want to use size against them or how they want to play it. But, you know, again, I I, I would say in general, they probably need to play Lopez more than they have. Um, other than that, I don't worry about it too much. I know there's been a lot of talk about whether Tucker should go back to the bench in favor of someone like Connaughton, who's a little bit more of a pure wing, can space out to, and, and shoot above the break threes and, and be better as a cutter. Um, especially, you know, for, for the value that would have offensively, because PJ doesn't necessarily have an obvious defensive matchup all the time. I think that would be fine to try. But by the same token, you know, you look at the first two games, they got off to very good starts, actually, especially in those first quarters with the starting lineup that they have. So I think a lot of the, the numbers we've seen so far are just, you know, the positive numbers are just from the fact that they've gotten off to kind of those quick starts as Phoenix missed shots early. I think Paul, you know, Chris, Chris Paul has like, I think he didn't score at all in the first quarter of game one. And um, I think he only had maybe one basket, maybe two baskets in the first quarter of game two. So he's kind of had slow starts. So, you know, player, best players, absolutely. But at this point, you know, I think it's going to more, I think a lot of it comes down more to like the philosophy of, are you playing big or are you playing small? And, you know, for the most part that that's obviously kind of a, are you playing Brook Lopez type question? Um, And I think I would veer towards, you probably need to play big more often than not. So I, I think they should lean more into that. But it's not to say that that there are going to be times when they have to go small because Brooke is going to need to rest at times. Um, but I think you also want to try to match up those minutes against, um, you know, DeAndre and being on the bench. Because right now the Suns pretty much have no size unless DeAndre is playing. Yeah. And to your point, like you said, Connaughton really is the only non-starter getting very heavy minutes, uh, averaging about 30 minutes per game. But if you decide to go big, Aiton, you know, he's played heavy minutes this series as well. So 
Um, maybe you try to match up Lopez with him a little bit more instead of Lopez having 22 and I think 28 minutes. But that's that's just something you figure out. I guess this is going to be the last question we ask. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us during this very exciting time for the Bucks. This will be a little bit of a zoom out question, more looking towards the future. When you look at assessing the season that the Bucks had this year, given that some would say they had a little bit of an easier path to making the finals, given that they played a Nets team that was pretty banged up. The Sixers had already been knocked out by the Hawks before they got to being matched up with the Bucks. So I won't ask if you think there's any sort of asterisk on the season, which I think is an overplayed type of question. We went over it last episode when we spoke to Greg Esposito about the Suns. But when you evaluate the season and you think about the Bucks' performance, do you think the Bucks as an organization are happy enough with this performance to try and run it back, essentially pat next season or... Let's say that they don't end up coming back in the finals. Would you say that there are holes that need to be filled or other things that need to be changed around the team or the organization? I mean, I would expect more or less the same or a very similar roster to come back next year. And some of that is because I think the Bucks like who they have. Um, some of that is because they don't really have you know, the draft capital, especially after the holiday trade. And, you know, they don't have like high value young assets that they can, you know, move for veterans, things like that. So they have sort of limitations, you know, just in terms of what they can really kind of do from a transaction standpoint. Obviously, one big part of that is also just in terms of free agency. Um, You know, I was kind of looking at the roster and some of the, the cap math. I mean, they have full bird rights on PJ Tucker. He's, you know, 36 years old. So it's not like you're looking to lock him up to a four-year deal. I don't think you actually really can due to the over 38 rule. They'll have the taxpayer mid-level. Um, but other than that, I mean, they're pretty much just using, uh, mid, you know, minimum contracts and they're, they do have the 31st pick, um, in the draft overall. So, um, there's very little room for them to really do much of anything. Um, short of using that pick 31 to, to try to make some sort of move. Um, they really don't have much flexibility to make any types of moves. Um, you know, the the mid-level exception is kind of the, the one obvious. I mean, really, like, what do you do you bring back Tucker and what do you pay him is one question. And then, you know, what do you do with that taxpayer mid-level? Both Bobby Portis and Bryn Forbes are free agents or, or can opt out of their contracts and become free agents. Um, I think we've seen, you know, the limitations of Forbes here in the last few rounds of the playoffs. Just he's so small and is such a defensive target and, you know, he's not a, a creator for others. You know, he's obviously just a, a pure out there, out there gunning for himself. I don't think, you know, you want to use the mid-level exception on, on a guy like that, who just doesn't look like a guy that's going to be, you know, a real playoff contributor. And Portis, you know, kind of depends. I mean, the guy literally couldn't get on the floor against the Nets because the matchups had a much bigger positive impact in the Hawks series. We'll see if he can play a role here in this Sun series. Um, but, you know, would you actually use some or all of that money to try to bring back Portis? Man, that's kind of tough too, because Bobby's got, you know, certainly a lot of the big man sort of uh, questions about, you know, how, again, how playable is he in every scenario in the playoffs? And I think you absolutely have to be making that, obviously, your, your sole focus, right? Like, is this going to be a guy that can play in the East Finals, you know, in the conference semis, in the NBA Finals, et cetera, and be a real value add? 
So there's not a whole lot of flexibility for them to do anything. They've got, thankfully, Giannis now signed up on a long-term Supermax. Chris and Drew are both signed long-term. I, I don't. I just don't know what you could really upgrade by trading one of them at this point. Um, so I would fully expect those guys to be back. I mean, this is Drew's first year uh, with the team as well. So I would certainly expect them to run it back. I would be very surprised if Bud was not retained at this point, just because, um, you know, I think he's at least shown enough (laughs) capacity to learn and improve and make tweaks and be a little more proactive than he has been historically throughout these playoffs. Um, If Giannis, Chris, and Drew felt like they needed a new voice, then I think you would say that Mike Budenholzer's job would be far less secure. I don't know that those guys would say that though. So at this point, I would assume he comes back, but you know, he's a lame duck next year if he's not given an extension. So it puts him in a weird spot. Like, do they try to give him like a one-year extension or something like that? I don't know. So I think the coaching question has probably always been like the one that I thought was most interesting throughout these playoffs. Like, what did Bud need to do to stick around? Because I think the roster more or less was, it, was what it was. And as you're alluding to, I mean, I think the scary part for the Bucks is you've, you know, all this stuff had to happen to get to the finals. They shot themselves in the foot a fair bit. That kind of made the path more difficult than probably maybe needed to be and you know with the Giannis injury it was a little (laughs) more nervous and anxiety inducing than maybe it should have been but I don't think you know next year anybody's gonna well I mean some people might but I don't don't think they're gonna be like the hot favorite to go back to the finals next year because as you said the Nets maybe people take for granted their health and they shouldn't but those guys I think would be the prohibitive favorites to start with we'll see what moves kind of you know the 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 Sixers in particular make Um, so yeah I mean I think that's the challenge for the Bucks right now is this is probably their best chance ever to win a championship there's really no guarantee that they're going to be able to get back right and the suns obviously had a really fortuitous path as well perhaps even more injuries to to their opponents than even the bucks had but you know you just kind of have to take advantage of these things when they happen and i think if either of these teams um i don't think historically you know i don't think people are going to really think of it as an asterisk or something like that just because ultimately like one of these teams is going to beat a good team for the title and i think that's kind of what we'll remember um, and certainly the Suns have looked like a championship worthy team here is going out to this 2-0 lead. And if the Bucks can somehow overcome that, I think they'll be remembered fondly for their ability to do that. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of scary if you're a Bucks fan or in the Bucks front office because, you know, Middleton's going to be 30 next year. Holiday's going to be 31 next year. Your depth is, you know, going to be at best similar to what it was this year. And, you know, I think the financial piece is challenging too, because I was doing some of the math. I mean, if they bring back Tucker at a deal kind of a, around what he's making now, like eight, nine million bucks a year, and you just use the, the taxpayer mid level and just sign minimums beyond that, I mean, they could be looking at a $45 million luxury tax bill just to do that, right? Which really is essentially just running it back as, as you were alluding to. So there's going to be a major gut check for ownership, you know, whether they're willing to pay to have a even really a, a decent chance to do again what they've uh, done so far this year. And certainly ownership has not been willing to pay the tax so far. And, you know, the the discussion was always that they'd be willing to do it when it, when it was necessary. And certainly next year, it's absolutely going to be necessary. So definitely a tough spot for, for them. If they can't come out of this with a championship, they win a championship. Hey, everybody's going to be happy. And, you know, whether they pay a huge tax bill or they duck the tax, you'll always have that championship. But if you don't, um, absolutely next year, you know, you're going to be looking at, I think a, a harder road to the finals. And, you know, a roster that certainly may not be better and um, probably the same coach coaching staff as well, which, 
you know, you hope that they've learned something. You hope the, the players have, you know, been battle tested and, you know, will will be better suited to making another long playoff run next year. But as we know, there's, there's really no guarantees in any of this, right? I mean, you got some injuries, bad things happen, you know, you have a final run one year and you could get knocked out of the, in the first round the next year, right? That's, that's what happened to the heat at the hands of the bucks. So those are the kinds of things bucks fans are not wanting to think about right now. Let's just say that. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope you enjoy being in the finals this year as while the ride's still going. Thank you, Frank, for spending so much time giving us so much information. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and good luck. Thanks, guys. Uh, I will be crossing my fingers that the next time I talk to you will be under better circumstances, but uh, certainly uh, in a tough spot right now, down 2-0. But hey, that's why I'm in the finals. Game, right? so. We're in the finals, in the finals, right? I mean, yeah. a week ago, I would have uh, been just happy for Giannis being able to walk upright. So uh, yeah. we've come a long way just in you know the last nine days. Yeah.